The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics and one of the topics that I I can't um, emphasize enough. It's so important for everyone to get, uh, even though it's, it's another kind of inconvenient truth, but um, it is one that is assailing our shores ever closer. And that is, is the Islamic State winning the war on terror? Um, you know, there was a commercial on a radio station that I was listening to uh, last week that kept coming on and saying it was it was some radio host who was um, trying to promote his views, and he was saying, you know, <laughs> the government tells us that we're winning the war on terror, but I always thought that winning meant that you um, you take over most of the land, or you're you're successful in most of the battles, and the loser <laughs> is the one who isn't. And using that kind of definition, it really doesn't seem like we are winning. Uh, the war on terror, and instead, um, the Islamic State is. And you know, it's—I uh, mean, I was—I was—I was struck by that because it's rare, unfortunately, that someone comes out and says that so blatantly. And it is so true, and we all need to be awakened from this lull that we're in, this denial that we're in. And so I talk about um, cognitive dissonance, how on the one hand, every day we hear something in the news about terrorism, whether it's a terrorist trial like the Boston Bomber trial, or whether it's an attack somewhere, um, or whether it's a foiled attack, whatever it is. And, and so we, we hear that, you know, at one level, and yet our denial kicks in and says, it makes excuses for it. Well, that wasn't close to where I live, or they foiled it, see, the terrorists are never going to win, um, or some other kind of psychological defense to protect ourselves from the truth, which is that this is re- the battle is heating up. I mean, it has been heating up. Um, since 9-11, if not before, and um, it is not getting any less of a danger. So uh, today uh, I have brought on a guest who is so incredibly knowledgeable about all of this. His name is John Sutherland. He has just come out with a new book called I, Gorilla, Reshaping the Face of War in the 21st Century. He is a senior analyst for the U.S. Department of Defense, Before that, he was Army Airborne Ranger and Pathfinder qualified before he retired as a lieutenant colonel. He served two tours in Iraq. He's a graduate of the 
Command and General Staff College, and he received a Master's of Military Arts from the School of Advanced Military Studies. So I don't know of anyone else who is able to bring you the real scoop um, better than John Sutherland and um, more up-to-date than he is. So, John, welcome to the show. Well, Carol, I'm glad to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's start with um, the, since it happened today, let's start with what's been going on in Washington between the Senate hearing being evacuated, and of course, ironically, it was a hearing talking about TSA, where um, the latest problems came up. 73, this is so, I mean, it's unbelievable. If you, if, you know, if this was in a, um, if somebody submitted this as a screenplay in Hollywood, it would get rejected right off the back bat as not believable. 73 employees from the TSA are on the no-fly list, and that was just the latest news oh. after 95% of the um, trials that they made to, to bring in weapons and, and explosives and so on to test the TSA, 95% of them got through. So isn't it, it adds to the irony that a Senate hearing talking about this would be evacuated by a bomb threat. Well, it, it is ironic. Um, I think what happens is, and you're the expert on this, but, you know, once you get into a routine of, of doing something like the security screens and you have a, a, a quiet period of time, you get used to it and it becomes so routine that it's easy to overlook real threats. And I think about when we went through screening when I was in Iraq, and it was a very serious, long, drawn-out experience, and Army guys searching other uh, Army and Air Force personnel. And you come back to the States or, or Europe, Germany, uh, you know, anywhere else, and they're, they're kind of not really as intensely focused, and it's they, they go through a cursory uh procedure and it doesn't seem to be quite as intense yes yes and you do get uh, complacent when you don't find things for a while that's true but what do you think about the 73 employees who have access to secure locations being um employed by the tsa well it's it's the bureaucracy is uh in all of these these large organizations is uh, is baffling to say the least and we're bending over backwards to accommodate everybody and not make false accusations to the point of of overlooking the obvious and, and i think it's a, again it's another pretty common problem throughout the west we we see people we know that we should be concerned about but we're more worried about making a false accusation than maybe checking into it in detail mhm mm mhm mm and what about these uh, bomb threats and so on? What's been happening in Washington today? What do you think? Well, it's a, it's a coin toss whether they're real or, or imagined. But that's, again, that's the uh, terrorist's advantage. Uh, all they have to do is be active enough that even false alarms are taken seriously and they can disrupt society. Uh, I have no idea whether these ones today were real or not, but... Uh, it could be a, an actual threat who, who made the call simply to get it on TV. And mm -hmm. and uh, the terrorists can now say, hey, look, they're afraid of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, t tell me what, tell all of us what, um, 
you know, why you have made, well, obviously, well, actually, let me start back a little bit. Obviously, you have been interested in war and the military since um, long ago when you went to um, the School of Advanced Military Studies. Um, what, what, what were you thinking when you started, and how has all of this changed? Well, the, the strange thing for my career was the first half of it was Cold War, and the enemy was the Soviets, and everything was a you know, linear World War II-style battlefield where you had a, a big opponent that was easy to find but hard to kill. Uh, after 2001, everything kind of flipped on its head. The Soviet Union had collapsed, and, you know, for a while, we were, everybody was kind of thinking there really is no major threat out there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with 9-11, the terrorists showed up, and all of a sudden we had a threat that was hard to find but easy to kill. And so everything kind of turned upside down as we had to find new ways to deal with a threat that could actually attack us on our home soil like the Soviets never did. Mm. Uh, so it was a, it was a total reversal of what my first half of my career had been about. Uh, insurgency and counterinsurgency was kind of the backdrop to the Cold War, and now it's in the foreground. And in the 21st century, as you know, the all the the tools that are open to terrorists to use, plus the lack of the bipolar restraint between the Soviet Union and America, that tension that kept everything kind of frozen, that's all gone. So now it's it's a wide open, and the, the the threat has access to a lot more tools than they ever had before because of the the end of the bipolar world. Hmm. And um, and also you talk about um, you know the, I mean I gorilla the the very name of your book. Um, you you talk about how how significant the internet is in in this war. Yeah. The. It, it, Create super empowerment. Uh, you know, back in the day when it was Russians and Americans, uh, access to all that stuff was highly monitored, not only by us, but by all the countries involved, because nobody wanted to be the guy that triggered, you know, the big fight. Well, when the, the, war, the Cold War came to a stop, the monitoring kind of went away, and it was, it was a free-for-all, and the Internet was everywhere. And now, you know, with the... The, the terrorists caught on to it. It took them a while. It took them maybe nine or ten years to really take advantage of it. But now they, they hand out uh, floater laptops. You can get on there, and you can get into a chat room with, with uh, an, an imam or a sheikh uh, to be radicalized. You can go to YouTube and get uh, instructional videos. Uh, you can get uh, weapons and equipment uh, you know, with a credit card uh, mailed to you. Um, in, in reality, for the first time in history, the, the terrorist insurgency has the ability to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Mm. Uh, you, you use Twitter accounts to, to put out your propaganda, and you can, you can tell everybody uh, what's going on. And you can recruit, train, equip, and launch an operation without the, the cell actually ever having had physical face-to-face contact with the uh, central command. Hmm. Hmm. It's compared to um, uh, Osama bin Laden, for example. Yeah, and and you think about, you know, bin Laden when he first started, it was all you know, meet face to face. You know, they were very much a traditional guerrilla cell organization. They had kind of that that central group of ideologues who provided the vision, 
and inspired the attackers to go out and do their thing. But they came to Afghanistan, they got trained, they met the, the leadership, and then they would launch on their missions. Well, as time went on, actually uh, Operation Enduring Freedom scattered them, and they, they were un incapable of meeting like that. And over time, they figured out that they could do it online. And uh, I remember back in way back early on, there was a uh, an online recruiter who called himself Erbil 007, mm. and he contacted the guys in Canada that made the uh, uh, preemptive attack on the Canadian Parliament, and it was all an online exchange, and it was kind of something new, and uh -huh. uh, they've they've kind of run away with that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Hmm. Well, what wh what is um. You know, getting back to the issue of people being in denial, I mean, is that what are you trying to accomplish with your book and also with the um, with the Jihad Watch Center that we'll talk about? But w what is your uh, goal here? Well, I'd like for uh, Americans to come to the realization that it may be over there for now, but it's only for now. Uh, you know, they used to say when uh, air power came into uh, came into its own that eventually the bomber would get through. That no matter what you did, the bomber would get through. Well, it's it's kind of become that way now with with the terrorists. They'll get through. Uh, the Islamic State has affiliates in uh, Libya and the Sinai. And where uh, we, and, and I, I need to, uh, so, unfortunately, I need to interrupt you just so that we can take a break. But when we come back, we will get into all of that. You My bet. guest is John Sutherland. Uh, his book is called I, Gorilla, and we'll be talking more about uh, the war on terror and who's winning. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here today with John Sutherland. He is the author of a new book called I, Gorilla, Reshaping the Face of War in the 21st Century. 
And um, actually, you, um, uh, you. I, I like the way you describe um, how uh, the terrorists are today. How you know dif- different it is being able to use. You say use progressive means in pursuit of regressive ends. Um, they are a schizophrenic cross between Attila the Hun and Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, you, when you look at the Islamic State, how sophisticated their use is of uh, social media, Twitter, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, Flickr, uh, you know, just, uh, just anything you can, and, and now uh, encrypted communications. Uh, they're getting their word out to everybody, and I don't think you would have seen uh, foreign fighters from 30, 40 different countries flowing into Syria to join this organization had they not had this kind of new reach. And they're selling a very regressive goal. They want to go back to the 7th century caliphate, which appeals to, you know, fundamentalist Muslims, I suppose. And their message shows strength, it shows victory, and it shows dedication to a fundamental dated version of uh, of Islam that it appeals to some people and the the extreme violence appeals to unfortunately uh, some societal malcontents who are looking for kind of a, a a kind of warped version of Disneyland where they can go live their fantasies in this place where that kind of thing is accepted mm, yes yes to take the ride um, well, what what do you think about that? Um, you know, the, the the people who um who are being I mean yes, as you're saying it's like an increasing number of people who get seduced by this every day. Well, I think it's it's kind of a bizarre thing that people are are attracted by this extreme violence and this uh, this extreme culture I, I, that the, that Islamic State is promoting, uh, a lot of them are, I'm afraid to say, are probably just bored, and they, they see excitement over there and adventure. And, uh, you know, reports are that not all of them are too thrilled with what they get, but they're still dangerous because if they make their way back to their home countries, they could do something uh, on behalf, you know, on the call of, of, of the Islamic State. Uh it has a, quite a magnetic appeal for for folks who are into bringing some kind of new adventure, I guess, into their life. It's it's a strange and kind of perverse thing, but it's working really well for them. Well, also, I think it has to do with people who, like the people who go there from America, that it has to do with people who are uh, who have given up on their being able to reach the American dream, that it's not going to happen for them, and uh, that they're angry about it. And if, if they're not going to, you know, have the, uh, the house in the suburbs and the, you know, expensive car and the um, trophy wife <laughs> and all the other things that they think are supposed to be a part of the American dream, well, then they'll just crush the American dream then, then, and, and the Americans who are living that dream, and, then, and, and their life will be significant now because they'll make, you know, they'll make headlines. Yeah, why, absolutely. And it was a stroke of genius for the Islamic State to declare the resurrection of the caliphate uh, after conquering Mosul. Because what they did was all the terrorist groups before them 
that was an aspirational goal that I, they almost didn't seem to believe themselves that they would ever get there. Hmm. Uh, bin Laden and Zawahiri only, you know, very vaguely alluded to the return of the caliphate one day. And Baghdadi and the Islamic State, they just flat out announced it. And suddenly this aspirational goal became real. And they had real estate from, you know, the border of Lebanon through Aleppo all the way over to Mosul. They had a pretty large uh, piece of territory that they could call their own. And all of a sudden this, this utopian dream, dystopian to most of us, has become a reality. And that has some appeal to people who think that, you know, these are people who know what they want and they're going to go get it. And they believe in it so completely that anything is, is possible. Well, okay. So, um, and who want to be on the winning team, it seems like. I mean, so what would you say to that question? Are they, are, is, um, are the terrorists winning? Well, I think, I think it's hard to argue that they're not here in the short run. Uh, I really don't think they can win in the long run, but because it, as much as a, a brilliant stroke it was to declare the caliphate, it actually gives you a physical location to attack them, whereas al-Qaeda was kind of you know, a virtual organization. They were everywhere and nowhere. But in the short run, I think they, they have the upper hand. Uh, their terror is working in terms of making the Syrian soldiers and the Iraqi soldiers run. The only guys who are fighting them effectively are fellow radicals like the, uh, the uh, Shia militias, the Hashid al-Shabi, the Kitab Hezbollah, the Badr Corps, you know, fellow radicals. But you're seeing some resolve. Uh, I think uh, al-Sisi in Egypt would really like to see a regional Arab army that would field itself and go take these guys on. He, he seems to be, out of all the leaders in the region, he's the one who seems to be the most in tune to what this danger means. And that's probably because uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is the grandfather of all these organizations. And they've been dealing with them since 1924. Uh-huh. Um, well, you know, I, I mean, given this, um, what is it, what, how do you feel or what do you, you know, I mean, I guess maybe that's in part what your book is trying to do, too, that while while these realities are happening, um and the White House is feeding us all this propaganda to sort of, you know, talking about denial, um, trying to help the American public go to sleep and not worry and, and let them do whatever they're going to do. Well, it, it seems to be kind of an American tradition to, to kind of close your eyes to the threat until it slams you in the, you know, lands on your front door. You know, back in World War II, we did the same thing. We saw the world burning around us and kind of, kind of kept to ourselves until the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor. In World mm-hmm. War One, we waited till 1918 and we were begged to come in. Uh, Americans, uh, we we're, have the benefit of geography. We have the two oceans on either side, and we feel like we're an island of security. And I think, unfortunately, until there's something really impressive, the people are content. Uh, 9/11 really woke us up, and we went to work and. And, you know, we got tired of it because it was a long, hard haul. And I think right now I'm afraid that uh, we're going to kind of sleepwalk until something happens or some leader speaks up that really energizes our imagination and says, hey, you know, we need to, we need to step up. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and you know, um, people try to pretend that like nine eleven is over and and um, you know we're over it and it was bad, but you know let's uh, move on kind of thing. And yet, and yet, really, um, I I see evidence of it not being gone in the sense. I don't mean necessarily militarily, but in the in terms of like people being affected, like. Um, the uh, obesity epidemic, for example, uh, I think a lot of that can be attributed to how uh, 9-11 started people on the path to using comfort foods to comfort themselves, um, and we haven't stopped. And the, the problems with our workforce, um, you know, the, pro- the economic problems and so on, which, of course, there are many, uh, many factors with that, but I think part of the fact is people are not... People are not doing their job like they did before 9-11. There's a kind of, I mean, people aren't sleeping as well, for one thing. Um, and so they come to work and they're half asleep. And things are just, they're, in whatever occupation you look at, things are just falling apart, getting sloppy. Um, there isn't the same, there isn't the same dedication. There isn't the same, I mean, there's kind of a, a distraction. I think part of, um, People are, are living their lives partly distracted, although they don't want to admit or acknowledge or believe that, you know, there is this imminent danger. Um, part of them is distracted by it, you know, at least unconsciously. Well, I would agree that there's an underlying tension. Uh, you know, there's been probably, I actually have the, the exact number, but I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's been around a dozen foiled plots, and probably seven or eight of them made big news. And then there's been the few successes, like the Boston bombing. But Americans are like, you know, when the terrorism body counts are so high, it's it's like what Bin Laden had said. You know, you almost need something really drastic to get your attention. So I think we're thinking that the big thing isn't coming, and there's lots of little things that are looming out there. And I think there probably is a lot of underlying tension and nervousness about that. Mhm. Well, let's talk about some of the places, you know, all over the world where um where the, I mean, it almost seems like I know you talk about uh Rome, for example. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, who would have thought? Now, I don't know, are you connect that that would be um a target? Uh I mean, I don't know who would have, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. I won't speak for anybody else, but it just seems that seems like I mean, it's kind of like Paris, you know, what happened in Paris that it's that sort of wakes us up too. That these are places that we, you know, sort of foolishly, but um, or naively, didn't really think about in terms of terrors or London, of course. Um, but you know, those things hit Americans closer because we travel to these places more yeah. frequently. And um, and now Rome. Tell us about what what you're thinking about Rome. Well, the the Islamic State is is an offshoot of Al Qaeda. They were born as an al-Qaeda affiliate, and like al-Qaeda, they, they aspire to the utopian dream of, of Islam taking over the world. And so like al-Qaeda, they have some pretty pretty uh, expansive goals. The Islamic State affiliate in Libya are the ones who marched the Christians down to the beach, that they, the Coptic Christians that they captured in Derna, I think, or Sirte, and took them down to the, to the beach and beheaded them. And the... the fighter who led this procession pointed his finger across the ocean, obviously indicating he's pointing towards Rome, and he threatened that uh, Rome would fall. And other uh, 
communiques from them said they were going to attack the Vatican, kill the Pope, and you know wipe out the uh, Christian mono or polytheism. And you know if you look at all the uh, refuge, whoop, that's music coming on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess we are going to have to take a break right in the middle of this. Well, we'll, we'll come back, right? But right, we'll come back to the Pope after the break. Um, my guest is John Sutherland. His book is I, Gorilla, Reshaping the Face of War in the 21st Century. And we're talking about the war on terror. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with John Sutherland, a terrorist expert and the author of I, Gorilla. And before the break, we were talking about um, just some examples of um, terrorist targets and, and aspirations all over the world. Uh, because I'm trying to um, make allow, let John make the point um, about you know how there are countless targets and countless happenings, terrorist terrorist attacks and so on all over the world. And we were talking about uh, Rome and the Pope. So why don't you continue with that? Uh, yeah. So uh, the Islamic State, after they uh, executed those Christ- those Coptic Christians, uh, the the a lead guy announced that, you know, we will conquer Rome by Allah's permission. And we've actually intercepted, and this is an open source, that you can find it in the media, uh, Islamic State militant letters that have, pl- have their plans for using Libya as a gateway into southern Europe. Uh, it's it's a only 300-mile boat trip from Libya there, and, and last year Italy had 170,000 refugees uh, fleeing from uh, Libya, landing in uh, Sicily, Lampedusa, and, and Italy, and these uh, the Islamic State guys are aware of that flood, and they know that they can intermingle into that flood, and they plan on attacking uh, southern cities, uh, southern European cities. Rome is a big target, of course, because it's the home of the what they call the Crusaders. Uh, they'd also like to attack the shipping lanes, 
in the Mediterranean, and they have dreams of shutting all that down. And they even put out an entire video called A Message Signed in Blood to the Nation of the Cross, all about taking their war to the Vatican and, and into southern Europe. So they would love to blow up the St. Peter's Basilica. They'd like to attack airports, train stations, subway stations. And uh, one thing the Italians are definitely worried about is the 2015 World Expo in Milan. Mm. Wow. And mm. they know that they have a, a good environment to infiltrate guys across and, and start causing trouble. Well, you know, talk about denial. I mean, when I was reading about all of the um, refugees coming across and how how Europe um, in general has gotten down on Italy and wanting wanting Italy to uh, rescue these um, refugees and and I mean just the pressure from uh, various parts of Europe to rescue their refugees and 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 bring them in. I mean, you know, yes. Um, First of all, economically, that's that's suicide for all of those countries. Right. But um, but also, as you were saying, yes, you know, it does make it easier. First of all, it makes it easier to radicalize some of these refugees if they're not radicalized already, and and of course for the terrorists to mix with them. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking as far as just. I mean, yes, no one. It's sad that the refugees are, are dying at sea. Uh, some of them, but the answer I don't think is accepting an unlimited number of them to the shores. That's going to be the end of Europe. Yeah, they, they need to have some way to screen them and relocate them because, uh, you know, that's one of the things the terrorists have done to us, and, and it's a, a real dilemma. They they take advantage of Western liberal secular society and our openness. And they turn it against us. They have a whole chapter on lawfare about how they how they use international law and, and local law to, to twist you around because we have standards that we hold ourselves to, and they know we do. And and so they take advantage of that. And I think they're going to try to take advantage of that in in Libya. And you know another thing that I worry about is <clears throat> if you remember Operation Protective Edge in Israel when they caught Hamas tunneling underneath the Israeli uh, villages around Gaza. Yes. They had a number of tunnels where they had planted bombs underneath uh, schools and hospitals. They also had tunnels that were that were huge, that were designed to bury back hostages. And they had uh, uh, flex cuffs and uh, um, medical supplies that they could uh, knock the guys out with and bring them back, and who knows what they were going to do with them. And they also had other tunnels where you, they would just pop up out of the ground and, and massacre people unsuspecting in different places and the islamic state saw all that they know about it as a matter of fact they've used tunnels to evade uh air attacks from the coalition and they, they there's also a belief that they used saddam hussein's old tunnel network which was, was pretty extensive and so there's one of the things they talk about in the book is the nexus between international crime and terrorism uh, they obviously have lots of of common goals. They they like chaos because they operate best in chaos. They they also smuggle weapons and and if the terrorists help them smuggle drugs, they get money for that. And there's uh, a growing network of of teamwork uh, emanating out of Latin America. It started in the tri-border region with uh, a lot of Sunni groups, and there's Hezbollah in Venezuela, and. I don't think there's any reason to not think that there's probably uh, Islamic State guys down there somewhere. 
And we know that the drug trafficking cartels have some pretty significant tunnel networks uh, coming from Mexico into the states. And what they generally do is the, the origin of the tunnel on the Mexican side will be in a large warehouse, and then it'll come up in a warehouse on the American side. So having large truckloads of things come to a warehouse won't be unusual. Mm. And then they can get into these huge tunnel systems. Some of them, they say, are even air-conditioned and big enough to drive a vehicle through. You could drive across, come up on the American side, and who knows what could happen. Hmm. Yes. And and yet, uh, and yet that you know, and yet the borders, um, even even without the tunnels. But of course, the tunnels make it worse. But the borders, even as they are, are so porous. Um, what? Well, it's quite difficult, and the, the drug cartels, the drug trafficking organizations have significant networks in the states, obviously, to distribute their products. And if they ever decided to to go so far as to support it, an actual operation by the terrorists, they would have a pretty good network to, to back them up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now, we don't have any, any there's, I haven't seen anything that says that they're doing that, but we do know that they're helping them... Uh, and they're trafficking because they get money from that. And uh, it's a pretty easy assumption that, at a minimum, they're helping uh, operatives come in and maybe set up sleeper cells the way uh, al-Qaeda did before 9-11. Uh-huh. Um, you just don't know. It, it requires vigilance, and it requires a, a public that is aware. Yes, yes. Um, you mentioned lawfare before. Could you get into that a little more Because and some of the examples? Well, let's see. Some of the examples are uh, <clears throat> there's it's big in Europe, and, it, and it's it's there is a degree of it here. Um, in uh, England, for example, there are whole enclaves of of little Islamic. Oh, I they call them imamates, or uh, I forget the name for what they call them now. But where they have Islamic law, and the the government allows that to happen in the name of tolerance. Uh, whenever they're criticized for their extreme, in Western view, their extreme uh, views, uh, they take you to court, and it's called uh, libel tourism, where they will they'll take on a a critic, and it's not somebody who's making unfounded uh, charges. It's somebody just ob- observing the clash of uh, cultural norms. And they'll take them on and take them to court, and the guys will often end up just surrendering because of the cost of, of taking them on in court. Uh, that's one of them, libel well, tourism. What, wait, what do you mean, libel? I, I don't, um, like, who would be the people who would be considered a libel tourist? Well, it would be, there are lots of uh, Islamic organizations that sympathize with the terrorists, but they aren't terrorists themselves. Yeah. So you come out and you you write a scathing critique of terrorism and their goals and their objectives and the way they do business and uh, these uh, legal groups, kind of like uh, with uh, the IRA back in the day when they had Sinn Féin who, who could talk politically and were just associated from actual IRA terrorism. These guys could speak on, on the behalf of the terrorists Claiming that they're not terrorists themselves, yeah, and so they would—they would be the guys who would take you to court and shut you down. Um, 
I, could, I wish I could think of it off the top of my head of a specific and, example. And shut, I remember, uh, shut down, like the the people living in these um, little enclaves would take. No, I don't think I'm getting it right. The who would be taking who down? Well, the it would be the the is the Islamist advocates taking down the critic, painting them as a, as an Islamophobe. Uh, yes. making them look like they're the haters rather than the other way around. It's legally shutting down criticism or things that bring attention to uh, deviation from societal norms. Uh, in, in Britain, uh, these enclaves would, would harass uh, gay couples that would come into the area because they have no tolerance for that. They would harass women who weren't dressed uh, in the standard that they saw uh, is acceptable. They would spray paint over uh, advertisements and signs that had, you know, women in bikinis or, you know, anything that was offensive to their way of doing business. Yes. And they would have their own trials for uh, honor killings within their society, for uh, settling disputes and whatnot. And when you would criticize them, you would be called out as, as an Islamophobe. I and in see. the West, we are so so tied to political correctness we nobody wants to be seen as a as a bigot right and so it becomes a losing fight in a lot of cases and the 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 advocate the critic if you will will either back down because of the expense or he'll be beaten down by the political correctness of the situation mm-hmm. we've had lots mm-hmm. of rulings that have actually favored the islamist view in the name of tolerance yes yes I mean, even what comes to mind is um, those 12 imams on the airline flight. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, who sued, which I forget which airline it was, but because they weren't allowed to, or they were, what was the story? They were kicked off the airline, or they weren't allowed to pray on the airline. There was something. Yeah, they were, they were, they were talking in Arabic, and they were refusing to put on their seatbelts, and they were just, they were being... As I recall, I don't remember exactly, but as I recall, they were being very uh, visible and, and somewhat threatening in their behavior and the things that they said. And when people complained about it, it was kind of beat, it was defeated as being Islamophobic. Right, right. And I think, you know, there are a number of other examples. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm afraid that none of them are coming right to, the, to my mind at the moment. But uh, I guess another, a good example would be uh, the Van Gogh movie in... Uh, what was that Denmark, where he made the movie about um, the oppression of women in Islam, and uh-huh. he was he was excoriated by the supporters of the Islamists, the nonviolent, the non-terrorist supporters, the mouthpieces, and uh, they whipped up such an anti-Van uh, Gogh sentiment. He was stabbed to death in the street. Yes, yes. Uh, so there's a. And of course, I guess the more, the more recently, I guess we could look at in a different, slightly different format, the cartoon, the the Texas yeah. and and Arizona and so on. Oh, that's as a matter of fact. Thank you for bringing that up. That's probably the best example. Uh, you know, it first happened when the Danish cartoons came out, and something like 300 people around the world were killed for that. And people in the West backed away from from freedom of speech in order to accommodate. Uh, the Islamist viewpoint on that, whereas, uh, you know, artwork, uh, 
critical of Christianity or Mormonism or Judaism is openly accepted. Right. And we but, saw that with the last cartoon thing down yes, in Texas. And, let, and I, yes, and let's hold that for when we come back. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get right into Texas. Uh, my guest is John Sutherland. We're talking about uh, the war on terror, who's winning. And uh, you can... <laughs> You can see where this is going. Um, John is the author of a new book called I, Gorilla, Reshaping the Face of War in the 21st Century. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get right back to my guest, John Sutherland, the author of I, Gorilla. We were talking before the break about uh, Texas and the cartoons and how, and, and not only cartoonists, but now bloggers and, and pretty much and, and media people. Um, I understand that there have been threats. <laughs> I may understand soon myself too well, um, but threats against uh, people talking about such things. And, and, and I, actually, I should ask, um, I don't know if you're concerned with your book, but, um, but uh, we certainly saw what happened recently in Texas with the cartoons. So, Talk to us about that. Yeah, so as soon as they announced what they were going to do, I, I mean, we no need to, to hide it. It was obviously uh, going to provoke uh, Islamists. Uh, the idea was to, to take advantage of Western freedom of speech and have the cartoon contest who would draw the best cartoon of Muhammad. And uh, it had the response that uh, the, the sponsors figured it would, that there was going to be a, a, a real violent uproar from the Islamist community, and there was, and uh, two self-radicalized um, individuals from Arizona headed up there and, and went after him. But in, in Texas, you probably need to be a little bit more prepared, and they, they were taken out pretty easily. Uh-huh. But in the wake of that, it was the, the cartoon people who, who caught the most grief, I think, from the press. Um, which strikes me as kind of a little bit backwards. We should be celebrating our freedom of speech rather than 
and giving in. Yes. Another example would be the there was an idea of putting these things on uh, buses, and that was shot down in uh, Washington D.C. And if you think about the counterpoint, during Christmas time, atheists put anti-Christmas things on mm. buses and billboards throughout. I know they do it in D.C. I'm not sure about elsewhere in the country. And you know, people accept it as it's their their right to do that if they want to. It's, it's seems unnecessary, but if they want to do it, they can. Well, we, we self-censor our, our our community, and that plays into the Islamist hands, I think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, do you have any concerns about your own work and your own, especially with this book, which is coming out on June 25th and is already uh, rather visible? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you can't, in today's world, you know, you were talking about denial. Uh, folks like us aren't in denial. So, yeah, there are concerns. Um, you know, one of my postings on the the Jihad Watch was uh, the killing of the bloggers in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Qaeda supported it. Zawahiri actually put out instructions on who was a candidate for death if they and what statements they would make would qualify them for death. And sure enough, three bloggers were secular bloggers in Bangladesh were hacked to death with machetes. Uh, it it's a worry. Um, the 9-11 guys spent some time here in Virginia Beach, so, you know, you just have uh-huh. to be aware, and but, you know, you can't put your head in the sand. I think it's important that we get these words out and see what people do with it. Um, I want to ask you about, the, about Cuba. I've been kind of interested in, um, you know, I, I don't trust anything that Obama does. Um, I think that he has made this country so much more vulnerable to terrorism in all his years, and I actually think that that was his agenda, and he's done a good job of it. Um, and now the latest thing is Cuba. Do you think that that was wise to take Cuba off the terrorist watch list? Uh, I can't comment on, on policy being a government employee, but I would say that anybody who's on or on the list should go through a a thoroughly rigorous screening before they're taken off the list. I think right now, from what I know, um, the threat seems to be in Venezuela. There's there's a pretty significant presence there, but I don't I don't agree with taking anybody off the list without having a public debate about it. It's just my my personal opinion. Uh, I know what they they think they're doing, uh, but rapprochement can't be a one way street. Mhm, mhm. <laughs> cigars aren't worth it, right? <laughs> I mean, they're to too cigars. close to our shore. I just, yeah, I just think that uh, anybody who's on the list needs to go through a thorough screening before they can be taken off the list. Mhm. Well, now what? Um, I mean, I began this. I called today's show. Um, uh, who's is ISIS? Is the um, Islamic State winning the war on terror? Um, and you know, you've talked to that. Um, I don't know how much you're able to uh, to answer this question, but what what do you see as the way um, without, without giving the terrorists a blueprint? What do you see as the way that we can stop um, their winnings thus far and and get control over this threat? Well, I I think it takes a professional state army. Uh, what, what's going on now in Iraq with uh, the Shia militias taking up the fight in Ramadi, I think even if they win, it's just going to inflame everything. 
I think it really takes real, no kidding, state armies. And the problem is, is the state army that's probably willing to do it is Iran, and Iran is the biggest sponsor of terrorism. So I look to guys, guys like Al Sisi in Egypt, uh, Hussein in Jordan, uh, if they can just get their act together and agree on a joint uh, military force of professional soldiers going in, kind of like we did in the first Desert Storm War, where we had we had Syrian divisions on our side, we had we even had Russian support, I and mean, we had had real armies going on the ground. Now, granted, we were fighting another army, but. Uh, I think as long as it's militia versus militia and uh, proxy troops who aren't dedicated to the state, it's, uh, Islamic State is going to continue to have success. Even if they lose ground in one theater, they'll gain it somewhere else. Well, you know, isn't one of the biggest problems um, the fact that we support some guys over here and then they turn out to be our enemies, and then we support other guys. I mean, we're, we're giving arms to people who then, or we have given arms in the past to people who then turn out to be our enemies. Well, that's why I think it comes down to alliances between states rather than, than buying into non-state guys. Uh, you know, we backed the Mujahideen, and a lot of them turned around and, and you know, stabbed us in the back. Uh, if, we, if you can partner with uh, somebody like Egypt, or, again, like Jordan, uh, Israel can't do it because, you know, it would just be too provocative for the, for the region. But I think it takes state armies to beat this thing. Um, and, and I agree with you. I don't think we should be partnering with, with non-state guys. I think early on in Syria with the Free Syrian Army, we had an opportunity. I think there was a genuine moderate uh, force there that was looking for political change, kind of along the lines of Arab Spring. But, you know, we were cautious with them, and probably rightfully so, and that, that opportunity passed because the guys with the money were the Islamists. Mm-hmm. And they showed up with tons of weapons and tons of money, and they took over the shell. Um, so you, you've got to search for a, a semi-secular, organized, professional military force, I think, to roll this back. Mm. And with, the, um, with sentiments being against... Um, deploying more Americans in the region. Uh, I mean, it just that makes it really tough also. Yes, it does. I, I really believe the, the U.S. military could do, uh, could make, sh- I don't want to say short order, because I don't want to minimize the challenge that it would be, but I think the U.S. military would definitely prevail. But I understand, you know, the, the American people are tired of it. And even if you do prevail, the, the problem is going to persist until there's some, some genuine cultural change there. Some, mm-hmm. And we're starting to hear voices amongst the Islamic, com, uh, Islamic com community in the Middle East about wanting change. Uh, I've seen a cleric today who was the former uh, uh, head of the Mecca uh, mosque who said, you know, we need a reformation. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that's jaw-dropping to hear that from somebody that comes from that, uh, yeah. that culture. Yes. And Al-Sisi has well, said, you know, this is crazy. We can't allow this. We're going to eat ourselves up. Yes. And so, you know, these are the voices that we need to get behind, and these are the guys who can change things. And we can't, you know, Westerners aren't going to be able to change it. They've got to change it themselves from within. And the situation is getting ugly enough that there might be some voices that if you can get behind them could lead that change. Yes. Well, we are coming to the end of our show, and I want to make sure that I give out to people um, where they can get this book. And let me tell, the, tell you the title of it again. Um, 
the um, the uh, my the author is John Sutherland, my guest. You've been thank you so much for being on the show. All of this has been so important, and of course, there's so much more in your book. And the book again is called "I Gorilla: Reshaping the Face of War in the 21st Century." It can be gotten from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and um, the History Publishing Company, the website of the History Publishing Company as well. So, John, thank you um, for you know <laughs> bringing some rationality to this whole thing, and um, and I wish you lots of success with your book, and I, I hope it's uh, will help people to. Um, to understand just how just how much we we need to sort of wake up from pick up our heads from uh, the holes in the sand that they've been in. So thank you very much, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.